I want to read to you from a book called Gray Matters by Brett McCracken. He starts the book off by saying, let me tell you about two friends of mine, both 20-something Christians who grew up in the evangelical subculture and graduated from Christian colleges several years ago. The first, we'll call him Lee, is a deeply pious, Bible-toting conservative who believes there's pretty much no value in secular music, movies, and television. He's something of a wet blanket at parties, always giving disapproving grimaces when he sees fellow Christians watch rated R movies or sip a fermented beverage. He's well-intentioned and a nice guy if you get to know him, but his indifference to art and culture, unless it can be purchased in a Christian bookstore, is bothersome. And his legalistic stance on media consumption can be downright noxious. My other friend, let's call him Lance, grew up in a household that espoused many of Lee's legalistic views. However, in college, everything changed for Lance. He was introduced to secular music and foreign films, and he hung out mostly with art and sociology majors. Uh Uh-oh. There's the trouble right there. He came to view his old fears of secular culture as ludicrous. He threw away his Christian CDs and threw his arms wide open to any and every bit of envelope-pushing secular culture he could find. He started smoking first cloves, then cigarettes, then pot, and especially relished lighting up when he was around more conservative fellow graduates of his evangelical college. He got drunk at any party where liquor was on hand. He learned to cuss with the best of them. No outside observer would have ever guessed that Lance, painfully desperate to distance himself from his legalistic youth, was a follower of Jesus. Among the many things the divergent paths of Lee the legalist and Lance the libertine demonstrate is this unfortunate fact. Christians have a hard time with nuance. Gray areas are not our strong suit. It's way easier to just say yes or no to things rather than, well, maybe, depending But simple responses to complicated questions are exactly what lead to extremists like Lee and like Lance. Certainly there are plenty of places where a clear yes or no is absolutely appropriate, even necessary. But there are also many areas where it's not that black and white. God gives us minds with the capacity for critical thinking so that we might navigate the complexity of these less straightforward areas of existence. Today, my friends, we are um, taking a little bit of a trip into the gray, into the nuance, and it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit challenging for me, to be honest, to, to preach a sermon that is essentially on, hey, we might land in different places and all of these non-essential things. Um, So I'm going to talk about some things as we go that I think are relevant to our culture. We're going to observe some that were relevant for the culture in in first century Rome when we look at Romans 14 this morning. But my goal this morning isn't to sound like I'm landing somewhere specific about some of these topics that we would consider non-essentials 
for the risk that we would find that this is now a law over here. This is something that's a yes or this is something that's a no. What we're trying to work at this morning is that in the gray, in the nuance, in where God has given us both the scriptures and minds of how we live as a church, as a community that actually differ on some ways that we play out our faith, some of the practicalities of where we land on things. So I don't really want to give you my opinion on a lot of these things. I kind of want to bring them up for the sake that we might recognize that we're going to land in different places on some of these things, but we are no less called to be a church that is to be unified and is to pursue um, uh, peace and unity. So um, this passage is Romans chapter 14. We're going to read the whole chapter. And I recognize that reading a chapter of Romans is um, quite the endeavor. Uh, So I got myself into a little bit of trouble this week trying to preach from a chapter of what is like the richest, thickest kind of theological book in our Bible. So let's look at Romans 14. I will read it. We'll pause here and there as we go through and we'll set up where we're going. Okay. So here's God's word, Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we have sort of topic number one that Paul addresses here. Those who refrain from eating certain foods. Um, This happened also, you can read about it in in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Uh, The church in Corinth had this challenge as well, where some would refrain from eating certain foods. We'll get into that a little bit more. Some viewed viewed that they could could eat anything and nothing was sort of to be uh, left out. But what we see here is that those who have a differing view, Paul calls the weaker view the one where people abstain from certain foods. It doesn't really matter too much, but it's just a sense that there are people with a differing view and we're to welcome them in and not to quarrel about such things. He goes on to say, one person esteems one day as better than another. Now we're starting to talk about the Sabbath. Well, another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This becomes an issue of conscience. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains also in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die... We are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So for those who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are his. Whether we live, whether we die, whatever we do, we are his. Goes on in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For he will, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself 
to God. It goes on, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's the heart of where we're going this morning. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So Paul is is sharing his conviction there, but some differ with that. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If it's an issue of conference, of of conscience, for someone who um, who grew up as a Jew and followed a strict diet, it's hard for their conscience to move beyond it for them to see that they're free to eat anything. So there's this. Um, so when they actually eat it and go against their conscience, they do consider it unclean, and it's as if they sin. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat. You're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So somebody who feels like they have liberty to eat whatever, eats it in front of somebody who doesn't, it's really causing an issue with that person. That's, we've forgotten about love. We've forgotten about caring for others, not simply for ourselves and our own freedoms. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, what he's saying there about the faith that you have, does that mean you never share the gospel? No, the the conclusions you've come to in faith about such issues, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. We're sort of reiterating that issue again. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now let's conclude in chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That is God's word. Now, if you have a bulletin, I'll I'll give you the three main words we're going to work with this morning. And and there's sort of a sub title to each and and we'll we'll tackle those as we go along but the three main words are liberty charity and unity we'll first look at liberty second we'll look at charity and third we will look at unity so first let's start in this text and see what's going on here so that then we can apply it to, to our context and some of the things that might be issues of our day where we might land in different conclusions where the gospel doesn't seem to speak. First, notice that there are at least three points of diversity in the church at Rome. I just want to say as, a, as an aside, diversity is both a gift and it presents its challenges. Is when we're diverse, we don't all think about everything exactly the same way. But this is a church that we can recognize that, that we love our diversity here. We long to be di- as diverse as the culture around us uh, and be centered around the gospel. Here, we, it's helpful to notice that in Rome, there was also diversity in that church as well. Here's three ways in which they had diversity. First, regarding what to eat. 
Some Christians in the church felt free to eat anything. Probably, uh, likely, including certain foods that the Old Testament had forbidden and also foods that had been offered to idols. Others in the church only felt free to eat vegetables. Verse 2 says, one, believer, one believes he may eat anything while the weak man eats only vegetables. I have found that men who only eat vegetables usually are pretty weak. But I don't, <coughs> I don't think that's quite what this is referring to. But, you know, there we go. Second, the second point of diversity is the, the special days referred to. That second point of diversity in the church is that some of the believers were strongly in favor of keeping certain holy days like the Sabbath while others viewed all days as holy in Christ. In fact, when the church began, the Sabbath was the day that they had always recognized. But you know when the church started to meet? Sundays, the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday. And so many, though, thought, well, how do we continue to observe the Sabbath? And so there was all this sort of nuance to that. So some um, were in favor of keeping certain days holy, while others viewed all days as holy in Christ. Verse 5, we see it played out. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Thirdly, had to do with drinking wine. The third point of diversity was that some evidently felt free to drink wine, while others thought it was not um, wise for them to do so. Verse 20 says, Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make others fall by what he eats. It is right not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. The differences are in their convictions about what behaviors are unclean, what behaviors give more glory to God. And even on this point, the differences only relate to non-essential things. So I want you to hear this morning that we're going to talk about liberty for a little while here, that, that Jesus, that sort of the law of Christ hasn't given us liberty to participate in absolutely anything we can conceive of. No, the liberty is given in, in, in these areas where the Bible isn't saying, isn't telling a story that's different. So... They're talking about what to eat or what not to eat and being confused about that and trying to work that out. They're not talking about you can divorce freely over here. Well, you hold that and I I hold that you can't divorce freely over here. The Bible's very clear about subject matter like that. But what we're trying to dig into this morning is where there's the nuance. And we even see that in the diversity and the conclusions that the early church had, you can see it in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 as well, that that these, these early churches had the same sorts of issues that, that we sometimes come across as we land in different places on some of these issues. So first, though, let's talk about liberty, this issue of liberty. Um, we are free to embrace God's good creation in a God-glorifying way that is not self-indulgent. Let's look at Christian liberty for a moment. Christians have Christian Liberty. This means that we have the freedom in Christ to enjoy many created things without fear of condemnation that are not sinful and clearly forbidden in Scripture. We have freedom to enjoy them. We understand that created things can neither commend nor condemn us before God. Therefore, as Christians, we have the privilege of freedom to enjoy various aspects of creation without fear of judgment. And so we see in Acts chapter 10 where Jesus comes to Peter in a vision and there's all sorts of animals there that Peter never would have touched before, never would have eaten before. And, and God, uh, Jesus is saying, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's saying, no, like, I've never touched these things. They're unclean to me and they're common. 
And, and the response is, what God has made clean, do not call common. First Timothy 4, 4 picks up on this where Paul says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This everything is good line is hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1 where God looked at what he had made and saw that it was good. And so what we need to understand is that there are good things that we can abuse, but that doesn't mean that they absolutely need to be removed. So alcohol can be consumed, but it should not be abused. Sex can be enjoyed in the right context, but sex can be abused. And on and on we go about, uh, and so what he's saying about good things is that they're not to be rejected, but they are to be um, fulfilled um, in a godly way. One of the challenges with all of this is that we see uh, that Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law, and now as followers of Christ, we submit to the law of Christ. And this is a complex topic. So you might read the Old Testament and you read something uh, uh, from the law in Leviticus. You're like, am I supposed to follow that? We we have clothes of mixed fabrics. Am I breaking the law? Like, How do we live in those kinds of contexts? Well, this is overly simplistic, but it's a helpful way for us to kind of press forward here. Regarding what Old Testament laws stand and which ones don't, sometimes it's a little bit helpful to at least categorize them into ceremonial law, civic law, and moral law. So we don't need to go through cleansing rituals in order to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, for Jesus was our sacrifice. Jesus is the one who cleanses and purifies us. We come to Jesus, and so we don't have to follow this ceremonial law of going through a process of going up to the temple mount clean and purified through a process of bathing and certain processes and if we've touched blood we cannot do that within seven days and on and on it goes that that is null and void for us jesus has fulfilled the 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 ceremonial law jesus was the one who was slain for us and we can receive purity through christ and cleansing through christ and so the ceremonial law is set aside likewise the civil law of israel as a nation is an interesting one because we aren't israel we aren't that nation. And so they had, a, they had Yahweh as their king, and then they said, no, we want a king like everyone else has a king. So they had Saul, they had David, right? They had, and they, they were to act in a particular way as the nation of Israel. They were to treat people in a certain way. They were meant to be a light in a particular way. And so there was this civil national law. Well, that doesn't really pertain to us in the same ways, and yet there remains this moral law of thou shalt not kill, and that isn't nullified, or we don't have some sort of Christian liberty to go on and go kill somebody. So, so we have to recognize that there's these, these lasting uh, laws from the Old Testament that, that get affirmed again by Jesus, or get, get shown us, in, as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus clarifying these for what they are. And the Apostle Paul affirms particular ones and things like that. So that's really helpful. And here, the Apostle Paul helps us discover that there is a rich freedom in being in Christ. He also helps us discover how to navigate the gray, the nuance, and hold our liberty in the balance. So when you see me talking about liberty here, that we are sort of free to enjoy the good things around us, we have to kind of have a couple of caveats to that. One is that it ought to be God-glorifying embracing of his creation, and the other is that it ought not be self-indulgent. So there's something about enjoyment of food or being moved by the sound of beautiful melodies and pleasant harmonies where God gets glory when we take pleasure in his creation. We aren't simply to be consumers, but we are to be God-glorifiers. 
So we take a bite of the food, and by its taste, it's, there's something about it that we say, praise God, and something we hear that's just beautiful. We praise God for that, something we see with our eyes that he's made, right? So there's that enjoyment of it for what it is, and it ought to produce gratitude in our hearts and bring glory to God. Notice in verse 6 that the stronger and weaker brothers and sisters in Christ are both very faithful followers of Jesus. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. They're both glorifying God. They're both giving thanks. One is abstaining and one is partaking. They're both Christians. Both are faithful Both are thankful. The weakest believer and the strongest one are equally justified in Jesus Christ. This is an important thing to note. We are among fellow believers here. Maybe you haven't given your life to Christ, but many in the room have. And we're among fellow believers here. And the weakest one and the strongest one, the most mature one, and the, the infant in the faith, we're all gathered here, every one of us justified in Christ. That is just a truth. The weak in faith, we can see, are not self-exalting in their abstinence. And the strong in faith are not self-indulgent in their liberty. They're both thankful and they both give glory to God. They are all radically gospel-centered. We are also... So there's a piece about giving glory to God. The piece about not being self-indulgent is that we are so capable of abusing good things. And liberty is not the abuse of things that are good. So a glass of wine is something that can be enjoyed, but alcohol can certainly be abused. We can be self-indulgent in it to a fault. Self-indulgent to it where this liberty actually imprisons us if we abuse it so much. The same can be said of food. We can enjoy a good meal, but we can also go go off the tip of the edge and become gluttons because we enjoy it so much or desire it so much or need it so much. The same can be said of the Internet that can connect us with people all over the world. And then, of course, we can abuse the Internet and use it poorly. Douglas Wilson, I think, when we talk about this issue of liberty, um, gives us a wise insight when he says, the way others are to view your liberty is not the same way that you should view your liberty. Here's what he means. Other Christians should let you do what you want unless the Bible forbids it. Other Christians should let you do what you want unless the Bible forbids it. That's how we guard against legalism. So where legalism comes in is legalism is saying you can't do this thing that the Bible doesn't actually say you can't. The Bible might actually be saying you can do one particular thing, but you can abuse it. So in the past, we swung the pendulum and said there's the potential for abusing this thing. Therefore, you cannot, what's all of you, none of you can touch this thing over here. That's where legalism begins. But, but what he's saying is that other Christians should let you do what you want unless the Bible forbids it. That's how we guard against legalism. But you should use your liberty differently. You should be asking what the reasons are for doing it of yourself and not what the reasons are for prohibiting it. So here's the thing. Um, Somebody might say, say for a minute I say, no one here is allowed to watch any movie that's rated 14A or higher. That's sort of a legalistic approach to that. We are to give each other liberty around about, you know, ratings of movies. And, and, and 
being wise for ourselves about issues of conscience. But what I should ask if I'm approaching a rated 14A movie or a rated R movie for myself is, what's my reason for doing? Why, why would I watch this? Is this going to be God-glorifying for me? Am I, is it going to produce gratitude in my heart for me to participate in this? Not, I have liberty to do it, so I will. That, that attitude will get us in trouble. But what we want to do is with others say, you have liberty, use it wisely, right? Go for it. For ourselves, we say, what would be the reason that I would want to have this liberty? And so that's a way of kind of being gracious to one another and also being wise. Ryan Kelly said, what we shouldn't conclude from all of this when we talk about liberty, what we should, sorry, what we should conclude from all of this is that it is the abuse of a thing that is sin, not its use. Sin is that which violates God's biblical commandments, not the additions and inventions we make. No man can bind the conscience of another. As sola scriptura Christians, as scripture alone Christians, our minds, wills, and hearts are directed by God's revealed will in the scriptures alone. On issues not forbidden or condemned by scripture, we cannot invent a morality, or worse, impose those inventions on others. We cannot be holier than Jesus, can we? So when Jesus came on the scene... Um, the rabbis had taken the Old Testament law and they had built additional writings and rules. They sort of would build fences around it. So take the Sabbath, for example. You're to keep the Sabbath. Well, what happened is rabbis would come along and they'd build a pretty big fence around it, which had a lot of things. They, they would start to define what work meant. If you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, they'd say, well, going to your neighbor's house three doors down is work. But you can go to your neighbor's house one door down. Or they would say... Um, you need to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. You need to be home and resting sort of by sundown on the Friday night. But the rabbis would come along and say, be home by 2 p.m. Because you might get lost or you might get in traffic. There might be a donkey incident, whatever it is. And you just just be home by 2. That's the new rule. To keep the Sabbath, make sure you're home by 2. So they would build all of these additional rules. And they would count it as God's law. So Jesus came along in Mark chapter 7 and he turns to them as they talk about the Sabbath and the disciples are walking through a field and eating grain from it. And Jesus says, and, and, and they're accusing him of not keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So there's a danger here we have in legalism, in, in guarding others or putting expectations on others that are actually extra biblical where we're actually saying, you know what, you might start to get close to this sin over here, so you can't do this, 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 or this either. And we tell that, and we put that on others. That's a really dangerous game to play. And Jesus actually condemns it. So in conclusion, when we're talking about liberty and the freedom we have in Christ, the strong have a more full understanding of God and his creation to the world, and are freed by this truth to embrace more of God's creation in a God-glorifying way, right? They're seeing that God has made all of these things good. They're not to be restricted. They're simply to be enjoyed as they ought to in a faithful way. And yet at the same time, their faith is strong enough, and they're not self-indulgent in their, in their liberty. So Martin Luther, I think, held the balance well. Here's what he said. Two very distinct statements. Here's the first one. A Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to none, 
Then he goes on to say, a Christian is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. What does he mean? Well, I think Paul addresses it here, has just clearly unpacked the freedom of a Christian, but will now go on to, to show how that freedom may and should be voluntarily limited. In other words, there are occasions where we may have liberty to participate in, in some particular thing, but for the sake of the faith of others who might not feel the same way, we limit our liberty. We actually become the slave of them. We desire that we become their dutiful servant and serve for their good, not our own desire. So let's get into that, point number two. See, Christians have Christian liberty. This means that we have the freedom in Christ to enjoy many created things without fear of condemnation. But there is another side to this freedom, the freedom to set aside our liberty for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, as well as Romans 14, we read that Paul's big priority is gospel advancement. Every argument pivots on him wanting to see the gospel speed ahead. In Romans 14, Paul doesn't want to assault the consciences of weaker believers by partaking of his liberties. He doesn't want them to stumble, sin by doing something that their conscience would forbid, and so he doesn't do it. In both cases, Paul's true freedom is not in what he can enjoy, but listen to this, Paul's true freedom is by what he can freely give up. He is not a slave to the weak, the Jews, the Greeks, or anyone else. He is a slave of Christ and a servant to all, and this is for the sake of the gospel. And so he recognizes his liberties, and Paul is a libertine of libertines, and yet he also recognizes that he hangs in certain crowds sometimes where his liberty, what he can do and feel, have a clean conscience about, is actually to the detriment of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he holds those things in the balance and wants to be a good and faithful brother in the Lord. So two, charity, out of love for others, our liberty should not shipwreck someone else's faith. Out of love for others, our liberty should not shipwreck someone else's faith. The issue of how to relate to each other over non-serious issues like food and days and drinks is very serious. The issue of how to relate to each other over non-serious issues is very serious. And that is what Paul is, is, is trying to do in this text. Look at him in Romans 14, verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So there's an issue of conscience, an issue of conviction for somebody, and you come along and it's not an issue of conscience for you and you just sort of freely participate in it or even press them to participate in it. And what happens is it actually destroys the one for whom Christ died. We must be wise in this. If a Christian brother unable to enjoy the freedom that is yours is troubled by your unrestricted diet and you persist in eating whatever you wish, you're no longer acting in the spirit of love. Paul's instruction is clear. Do not allow your own freedom of conscience to destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. To influence others to act against their conscience is a serious matter. Acting contrary to what one perceives to be right is to weaken one's own moral structure and undermine integrity. Since Christ died for believers with a weak conscience as well as for others, it's certainly not too much to ask that strong believers not destroy them by encouraging actions of which the weaker brothers do not approve. 
We, like the Romans and the Galatians and the Corinthians, often ask the question, what am I free to do? We, we approach subject matter about food and, and the Sabbath and about drinking. Okay, what am I free to do? We love to approach it this way, right? This, this is what, if you've ever done like a Q&A at a youth group, the, the questions they ask is like, how far can I go with my girlfriend? Because I want to find out that line. Or, okay, oh, I'm 19 now. How much can I drink? Like how many drinks would be like not a sin? And they want you to give them a number, right? Or, you know, you get, you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, I'm an adult. Like, what, you know, what ratings of movies, right? And what, give me the, the, the what, what, and what am I free to participate in is the question. Like, how far can I push it? But, but as I talk about that, do you kind of hear what it reveals about the heart as we talk? What does it say about the heart? Is it, how far can I go before I sin? As opposed to the question, what am I free to give up for the good of my brother or sister in Christ? Is there a context where zero drinks is right? Yes. Is there a context where whatever, in a dating relationship, that the lines are just, you don't even ask the questions of how far, you're like, how much can I honor? Or, right, is it these questions, so we, we oftentimes think for our own self-fulfillment or for our own liberty, our own joy, our own indulgence, we ask, how far can I go before I'm a wretched sinner? <laughs> Give myself over to it wrongly. And the question we ought to be asking is, how do I help the flourishing of my brothers and sisters in Christ? How do I live in such a way that honors them, does not cause them to stumble, is not something they look upon in my life and actually struggle with, and now they're holding something that they're maybe not able to balance as well as I can on the issue or whatever it might be? Romans 14.20 puts it this way, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble over what he eats. He's saying, sure, you go ahead and you can eat, but like, do you really want to cause a brother to stumble who has some dietary restrictions that are issues of conscience for them over your meal? Like, it's tough, but go vegetarian if they're vegetarians. Like, just do it, right? Don't bring this, like, huge sirloin and, like, plop it down and, like, just start carving it in front of them. And, like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. Like, it's just hard for them. And it's not appropriate. All right. We're going to go a little deeper into the nuance. Are you ready? D.A. Carson talks about this in relation to a couple instances in Galatians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 16 about the very uncomfortable topic of circumcision. Paul refuses to circumcise Titus even when it's demanded by many in the Jerusalem crowd. Not because it didn't matter to them, but because it mattered so much that if he acquiesced, he would have been giving the impression that faith in Jesus is not enough for salvation. One has to become a Jew first before one can become a Christian. That would jeopardize the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus. So there is a a crowd of Jews that are saying, circumcise Titus. But But Paul is noticing that in the crowd, they are demanding that as an issue of faith. That it's the, the gospel plus circumcision. So Paul will not do it because that's not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel plus nothing. But to create a contemporary analogy, Carson goes on, if I'm called to preach the gospel among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers who won't touch a drop of alcohol, he says, I'll give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I'll reply, pass the port. 
or I'll, or I'll have a glass of wine with my meal. Paul is flexible and therefore prepared to circumcise Timothy, which he does, when the exclusive sufficiency of Christ is not at stake and when a little cultural accommodation will advance the gospel. But he is rigidly inflexible and therefore refuses to circumcise Titus when people are saying that Gentiles must be circumcised and become Jews to accept the Jewish Messiah. So one way of looking at it is that Timothy drew the short straw and Titus dodged a bullet. But in reality, it had everything to do with what was happening in the crowd. And Paul did not want the gospel to be jeopardized. But the gospel could be jeopardized in one of two ways. So where this gets problematic is when we hold wildly differing views on liberty issues and make them big issues that are musts, when we major on our minor points of differing opinions and issues of conscience. This is where things get problematic. Things only get worse when we start to coerce and pressure our fellow believers to join us in our liberty while it opposes their consciences. So Lee and Lance... Who I, who I read to you about at the beginning, they're just diverging in totally different directions. And I think Lance is the libertine, and he's, he's just absolutely immersed in all this stuff and wants to flaunt it in front of all the others. That's, he thinks that that's how he should live out his liberty. But see, both are really missing it. And that's where the gray and the nuance and holding god's word closely and living in community in a, in a gentle and gracious way is really important brett mccracken the, the author of the book i started to read at the beginning goes on to say are we so embracing our christian liberty to partake of alcohol that it threatens to become less a liberty and more a shackling legalism something we can't or won't go without are we as free to abstain from alcohol as we are free to enjoy it? That's an important question about these kinds of issues. I think it's important that we are able to answer that last question in the affirmative. If we are not able to go without alcohol or any other area of culture, it's a problem. And if we hold it against other people that they don't drink or aren't foodies or don't like art films or whatever, that is also a problem. It's legalism masquerading as liberty. When we start to pressure people to partake in the things we feel the freedom to do, we're actually creating a totally different kind of legalism. The kind of legalism that says you must do this thing. Why wouldn't you participate in this? And pressuring people to do so. We need to be careful for two reasons. One, we can get ourselves into trouble in our liberty by passing thankfulness and wisdom around things and abusing the good things in our lives. And it can imprison us rather than liberate us. Something we might have liberty for, we can actually abuse, and it will imprison us rather than free us. Second, we need to be careful not to shipwreck the faith of others by how we engage liberties around others. The true beauty of having liberty is both the freedom to enjoy them in light of the gospel and to lay them aside for the sake of the gospel. You and I ought to be flexible with those things. Enjoy them in light of the gospel and to lay them down for the sake of the gospel quickly, easily. This is why Paul can say that nothing should be refused, but that everything should be received with thanksgiving on the one hand, and on the other hand, that he, could, he would be okay with never eating meat again, which he says in 1 Corinthians 8.13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. May we be charitable to one another. 
caring so deeply for the faith of those around us that we are willing to give up our rights. Thirdly, lastly, and quickly, unity. The gospel frees us to be a diverse and flourishing community. The gospel does that. So one of the challenges and blessings the church has always faced is that it included in its membership are the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, the old and the young, adults and children, singles and families, the conservatives and the radicals, people from many nations are Christians, introverts and extroverts and those of every temperament are Christians. This is a wonderful attribute of the church, but in our diversity comes the challenge of unity. It does require that we learn how to live in the nuance. It does require that we learn how to live with differing convictions on issues of liberty and charity. And so by doing that, for, in other words, for pursuing our unity, we need to be people who lay down our rights, lay down our privileges, lay down our liberties easily. Romans 14:13 says, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. We sacrifice our own desires for the sake of others because that's precisely what Jesus has done for us. So a few weeks back, I wrote a blog post on Halloween. I thought maybe it would be helpful. And there's this framework that's helpful to use sometimes, I think, on issues in the gray, issues of nuance in the faith. And that is three words that start with R. Should this thing be, should I reject it, receive it, or redeem it? So bring that into the context of Halloween. I wrote a post on Halloween. Should we wholeheartedly reject Halloween? Should we just completely receive Halloween? Should we redeem Halloween? Well, in the post, I start to talk about, well, I think there are actually aspects of Halloween that we ought to just reject. But I, I think there are, personally, I'm just talking about an opinion here, that there are opportunities at Halloween to simply receive my young boys went door to door at Halloween and received candy. Later that night, they went to bed and I received a lot of their candy. <laughs> and I just said, I received this. I received this. Ultimately, though, Halloween's depicted as, and it has some roots in, being a very dark night. So there's something to be redeemed there. That we be people of light that shine it in the darkness. See, Christmas in the first place, the incarnation, Jesus' birthday, was put over a pagan holiday. You know why? Christians wanted to redeem the day. We're going we're gonna, to, on top of your pagan holiday, we're putting Christmas. This day will be redeemed. And so we have to ask some of those questions. But as I wrote this post, talking about those things, hey, I'll put it in front of you. Maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's not. I said, far be it from me to try and change your mind where this is an issue of conscience. If you land somewhere else on this, I am not trying to persuade you. I'm putting a concept in front of you. And where your conscience lands, just please don't hear me saying that you should do otherwise. And I think that's that kind of nuance that needs to be had. Hey, I'm willing to talk about an issue Maybe I land differently than you, but hey, as I hear that your conscience leads you elsewhere, like go to the harvest party or just have a family movie night or whatever you do, bless you, good. Right? We want to just understand that, that pursuing our unity is what's so critical. Pursuing our unity and not our liberty on details and minute things and secondary issues is the point. 
our unity is the point, and so we give up our rights in front of one another over and over and over again. So I'd like to do an exercise right now if you'd like. Would you like to participate with me for a moment? Are you willing? All right, I'm looking forward to all five of you doing that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a few questions, Central. I would like you literally to respond, okay? Can we flourish as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church family, and have different opinions about homeschooling? Amen. Can we flourish, Central, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as church family, and have different convictions around alcohol? Can... Okay. I I expected some no's. Can we flourish as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church family, and vote for different political parties? Not Chilliwack and Abbotsford, but anyone else. Anyone else can. Can we flourish as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church family, and take our kids trick-or-treating or attend a harvest party or have a movie night? Praise God. Can we flourish as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church family, and wear makeup or not wear makeup? Some of you guys are saying yes. It's, all right. You're taking this liberty thing a little far. All right. Can we flourish as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church family, and eat meat or be vegetarians? Yes. It is so important to understand the place of Christian liberty and the priority of the gospel. This, this orthodoxy, this core, these tenets of the faith, these, these essentials that matter so greatly to us. It's been attributed to a number of different writers. Uh, Augustine gets credit for it most of the time where he says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. For the priority of the gospel and for the sake of our unity, laying aside our liberty to be the slave of all is something we all ought to be willing to do. It is the desire to see those around us grow in faith and not be stifled in it that we try and take those stumbling blocks away and pursue the good and the flourishing of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And most namely, our greatest priority is the fact that we follow a Savior in Jesus Christ who gave up his rights so that we could be saved. He had the rights to everything at his fingertips. The creation was always his. And yet he laid down his rights as king and lord over everything and came down and died for our sins, laying down every conceivable right so that you could flourish in your faith. So we come along beside one another. And you know what our goal is? Not our rights. The flourishing of our brother the flourishing of our sister. We want to do that for one another, not seeking our own advantage, but that of many. That is being gospel-centered. So central, welcome one another. Receive and accept one another into sweet unity and harmony and fellowship, not on the basis of divisive questionings about non-essentials, but on the basis of the glorious truths that God has accepted the believers that we differ most with. May we dwell on these great truths and accept one another with our differences in non-essentials. May we accept one another. May we love one another. May we spur one another on. And may we not cause one another to stumble. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to invite our prayer uh, team to go to different spots in the sanctuary. Someone will be coming up front. Someone will be in the back. Someone will be upstairs. The reason we do that is, is it is a beautiful thing to pray together, to be prayed for. So if you want prayer for anything, there are people that would just love to pray with you this morning. They're available. Just make your way over to them at any time. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave down your rights, that you gave up um, your position at the right hand of the Father to go into a manger, to be among the poor, to preach the gospel to people who would reject you, to die a criminal's death, though your record was spotless. Lord, you have shown us the way to put faith and the gospel in front of one another and not the things that would cause one another to stumble. Lord, I confess, I, I, I often want to win a conversation about the fact that we can do certain things because the Bible seems to say that we can't, doesn't seem to say that we can. Lord, I just confess that sort of attitude that just reveals such pride. I pray that you would, oh Lord, remove that from each one of us. Would we not be Lees and would we not be Lances? Lord, help us to be a community that long to follow Jesus faithfully and long to spur one another on in the faith. I pray it for your glory and the good of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.